0: CHAPTER 1 PART 2 OF RELIGION AND HEALTH This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry RELIGION AND HEALTH BY JAMES JOSEPH WALSH CAN WE STILL BELIEVE PART 2 OM after whom another of the units of electricity is named, was another of the scientists who realized very clearly the existence of Providence, and in one very disappointing circumstance in life, when he found that some of his work at which he had spent much time was completely anticipated by a Norwegian investigator, he said very simply, "'Man proposes, but God disposes.' and he chronicled the fact that without the bait of this discovery which he vaguely foresaw at the beginning he would not have taken up the work and yet during the time when he was at it quote, a number of things of which i had no hint at all at the beginning of my researches have come to take the place of my original purpose and compensate for it End when he undertook his next work he foresaw that he might not be able to finish it. He had hoped against hope that he would, and in the preface to the first volume, he declared that he would devote himself to it at every possible opportunity, and that he hoped and prayed that God would spare him to complete it. This simplicity of confidence in the Almighty is indeed a striking characteristic of the man of whose discovery of the law of electricity, Lord Kelvin declared, that it was such an extremely simple expression of a great truth that its significance is probably not confined to that department of physical phenomena but it is a law of nature in some much broader way professor george crystal of edinburgh in his article on electricity in the encyclopaedia britannica ninth edition says that ohm's law must now be allowed to rank with the law of gravitation and the elementary laws of statical electricity, as a law of nature in the strictest sense. Volta, whom the International Congress of Electricity so deservedly honoured by giving his name to one of the units of electricity, is the genius who first constructed an instrument which would give a continuous flow of electricity. The voltaic pile is a very great invention. Volta was much more, however, than merely an ingenious inventor. He was a great scientist who made discoveries not only in electricity, but in various other branches of physical science. He was one of the eight foreign members of the French Institute, knight-commander of the Legion of Honour, one of the first members of the Italian Academy, and the gold medalist of the French Academy. There was nothing he touched in his work that he did not illuminate. His was typically the mind of the genius, ever reaching out beyond the boundaries of the known, an abundant source of leading and light for others. Far from being a doubter in matters religious, his scientific greatness seemed only to make him readier to submit to what are sometimes spoken of as the shackles of faith though to him belief appealed as a completion of knowledge of things beyond the domain of sense or the ordinary powers of intellectual acquisition. In Volta's time as in our own, some of the less important workers in science had their faith disturbed by their knowledge of science and attributed that result to science rather than to the limitations of their own minds. One of them declared that, Though Volta continued to practice his religion, this was more because he did not want to offend friends, and did not care to scandalize his neighbors, and especially the poor folk around him in his country home, whom he did not want to be led by his example into giving up what he knew to be the most fruitful source of consolation in the trials of life, rather than because of sincere conviction. Volta, having heard this report, deliberately wrote out his confession of faith, so that all the world of his own and the after-time might know it. When he wrote it, he was just approaching his 60th year, and was in the full maturity of his powers. He lived for twelve years afterwards, looked up to as one of the great thinkers of Europe, and as one of the most important men of Italy in his time. If some of my faults and negligencies may have by chance given occasion to some one to suspect me of infidelity, I am ready, as some reparation for this, and for any other good purpose, to declare to such a one and to every other person, and on every occasion, and under all circumstances, that I have always held and hold now the holy Catholic religion as the only true and infallible one thanking without end the good God for having gifted me with such a faith, in which I firmly propose to live and die, in the lively hope of attaining eternal life. I recognize my faith as a gift of God, a supernatural faith. I have not on this account, however, neglected to use all human means that could confirm me more and more in it, and that might drive away any doubt which could arise to tempt me in matters of faith. I have studied my faith with attention as to its foundations, reading for this purpose books of apologetics as well as those written with a contrary purpose, and trying to appreciate the arguments pro and contra. I have tried to realize from what sources spring the strongest arguments which render faith most credible to natural reason. And such as cannot fail to make every well-balanced mind which has not been perverted by vice or passion embrace it and love it. May this protest of mine, which I have deliberately drawn up and which I leave to posterity, subscribed with my own hand, and which shows to all and every one that I do not blush at the gospel, may it, as I have said, produce some good fruit. Signed at Milan, January sixth, eighteen fifteen, Alessandro Volta. End quote. Sylvia Pellico, whose volume *My Ten Years Imprisonment* is one of the precious little books of literature that seem destined to enduring interest, had doubted, in the midst of his trials and hardships, the presence of providence in the world and the existence of a hereafter. In the midst of his doubts he turned to Volta. In thy old age, O Volta, said Pellico, the hand of Providence placed in thy pathway a young man gone astray. O thou, said I to the ancient seer, who hast plunged deeper than others into the secrets of the Creator, teach me the road that will lead me to the light. And the old man made answer, I too have doubted, but i have sought the great scandal of my youth was to behold the teachers of those days lay hold of science to combat religion for me today, i see only god everywhere in spite of traditions to the contrary great physicians in their relation to faith are like the great discoverers in electricity as a rule the greater they are as original workers in the medical sciences the more emphatic their expressions of their belief in religion, and its efficacy in the relief of human ills. The opinions of a few of our greatest physicians in the modern era of medicine are quoted here as examples of their attitude of mind. Sir Richard Owen, probably the greatest anatomist of the 19th century, was a convinced Christian and saw nothing in scientific truth inimical to the Christian faith. In an address before the Young Men's Christian Association, he asked his fellow Christians, Has aught that is essentially Christian suffered, have its truths ceased to spread and operate in mankind, since physical doctrines, supposed or declared contrary to holy writ, have been established? Allay then your fears and trust in the author of all truth who has decreed that it shall never perish, who has given a power to man to acquire that most precious of his possessions with an intellectual nature that will ultimately rest upon due demonstrative evidence. End quote. Sir James Paget, sometime president of the Royal College of Surgeons of England and vice-chancellor of London University, looked upon as one of the most distinguished of medical scientists in his time, after whom a special disease described by him has been named. In answer to the question as to the attitude of scientists towards religion, said, You will find among scientific men very few who attack either theology or religion. The attacks imputed to them are made for the most part by those who with a very scanty knowledge of science use not its facts but its most distant inferences as they do whatever else they can get from any source for the overthrow of religious beliefs sir samuel wilkes another of the presidents of the royal college of physicians and distinguished in many other ways among the physicians of great britain in his harveian oration expressed himself very definitely in this matter of the relations of science and religion, and his quotation from our own Oliver Wendell Holmes adds to the interest of what he has to say. Hear what a learned professor of anatomy, Wendell Holmes, can say. Science represents the thought of God discovered by man. By learning the natural laws... He attaches effects to their first cause, the will of the Creator. Or, in the poetic language of Goethe, Nature is the living garment of God. Science conducts us through infinite paths. It is a fruitful pursuit for the most poetic imagination. We take the world as we find it, and endeavor to unravel its mysteries. But the Alpha and Omega we know not enough for us to look at what is lying around us it is a part we see and not the whole but we can say with the poet we doubt not through the ages one increasing purpose runs professor Sims woodhead well known as one of the distinguished contributors to pathology in the nineteenth century and who was before being professor of pathology at cambridge the Director of the Laboratories of the Conjoint Board of the Royal College of Physicians, London, and Surgeons, England, may very well be taken as a representative of the medical scientists of the last generation of the 19th century. It has been said that where there are three physicians, there are two atheists, and perhaps this may be true among the smaller fry of the profession, but it certainly is not among the most distinguished members of it. Such men as Pasteur, Lord Lister, Robert Graves, Corrigan, Lenick, Claude Bernard, Johannes Muller, are the outspoken contradiction of it. Pathology and anatomy, in both of which subjects Professor Woodhead was a teacher, are often said to be rather serious in their inroads on the faith of the men who pursue them closely. Professor Woodhead is on record categorically with regard to this subject of the relations of the Bible and religion, and science and religion, and his words are well worthwhile quoting here. As regards the statement that recent scientific research has shown the Bible and religion to be untrue, Nothing is further from the real fact. The more the Bible is tested, the more it is found to be made up of historical documents. Moreover, it is recognized that the Bible, as a record of truths, never falls foul of science in its search after truth, and scientific men are too true to themselves to take the stand that they will not accept truth of any kind. I agree with you that certain theories put forward in the name of science may be opposed to certain theological dogmas, but men are certainly coming to see that between the facts of science and the essential teachings of the Christian religion there is never any real opposition, and by the Christian religion I mean the religion of Christ, not what some people have wished to read into it. And by science, I mean a search for truth and knowledge. And by men of science, I mean men engaged in that search. End quote. Professor John W. Taylor, one of the distinguished physicians of Great Britain and president of the British Gynecological Society, summed up the answer to the question, Can we still believe? in words that show how devout a great medical scientist can be. what can we hold by as christians we can hold by the faith of the early apostles as enunciated in the apostles and the nicene creeds and plainly foreshadowed in first corinthians chapter fifteen this was written within thirty years of our lord's crucifixion and must have been received by st paul immediately on his conversion any one who will turn to that chapter of First Corinthians will find that it contains all the essentials of Christian faith. Yet here is a great modern physician finding in it the expression of his own mental attitude toward religion in our time. Biologists, in spite of popular impressions to the contrary, have paralleled physicians in this regard to cite but one or two, Professor George Romanus. Who was considered not alone one of the leaders of scientific thought in England, but one of the foremost naturalists of modern times, after expressions as a younger man that showed his deep and even devout belief in religion, wrote somewhat later a defense of atheism on scientific grounds. Some years afterwards, in the maturity of his powers, he prepared a thoroughgoing recantation of this in the shape of a work designed to show the fallacy of his former atheistic views, in which he said, It is a general, if not a universal, rule that those who reject Christianity with contempt are those who care not for religion of any kind. To part from me has always been the sentiment of such. On the other hand, those in whom the religious sentiment is intact But who have rejected Christianity on intellectual grounds still almost deify Christ. These facts are remarkable. Unbelief, Professor Romanus concluded, is usually due to indolence, often to prejudice, and never a thing to be proud of. In every department of science, one finds the representatives of the various branches of scientific study in harmony on this subject of religion and science. Professor George Bulger, whose work has been mainly done in botany, and who was a fellow of a number of the scientific societies of England and vice-president of the Selborne Society, has some very direct expressions in the matter that add to the significance of what has been said by others in philosophy in physics and in astronomy i am content to place myself on the side of bacon of newton of napoleon i believe with bacon that a little philosophy inclineth man's mind to atheism but depth in philosophy bringeth men's minds about to religion with newton i am content to seemed to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me with napoleon not a man of science but a man of the world a man of action i would say to our neo epicureans as he did to his sceptical officers pointing to the stars gentlemen. You may talk all night, but who made all these? End quote. He recognized how many difficulties there might be for the scientist, but felt, as Cardinal Newman once said, that hundreds of difficulties may not make a single doubt. Professor Bulger has dealt with some of these cruder difficulties with trenchant directness. Quote, i am perfectly aware of the temptation of the physiological laboratory when one is face to face with the facts of the localization of brain functions and the influence of purely physical conditions upon mentality until one is almost led to buchner's gross misstatement that the brain secretes thought as the liver secretes bile but here as ever it is at the very base of the problem that the unsolved mystery shows itself insoluble force matter life thought will what are they whence come they science deals with their phenomena their manifestations with john ray i would term the study of nature a pious duty one suited to a sabbath day and not improbably one of the main occupations of the endless Sabbaths hereafter. But true science will never presume to say that it can deal with anything beyond these phenomena. As I am as convinced that the Christian faith is a divine revelation, as I am that nature is the creation of the divine first cause, it is, of course, to me unthinkable that there could be any conflict between them not only the scientists themselves but the philosophic students of the whole range of modern thought who took the information imparted by the specialists and coordinated it for the purpose of finding the philosophic conclusions to be drawn from it all as to man's life and destiny and the meaning of it all have recognized the place of religion in life and its significance for humanity Mr. Frederick Harrison, the well-known English apostle of Comte, whose positivism might possibly have been expected to lead him away from such ideas, did not hesitate in the midst of that wave of scepticism which spread over Europe shortly after the silly seventies, when so many, even of the well-informed, thought that natural selection was going to explain everything for us and solve all the mysteries to utter some very strong words on the subject that well deserve to be recalled. In his book, The Creed of a Layman, he said, for instance, I believe that before all things, needful beyond all else, is true religion. This only can give wisdom, happiness, and goodness to men, and a nobler life to mankind. Nothing but this can sustain, guide, and satisfy all lives, control all characters, and unite all men. True religion must rule in every heart, brain, and will, over every people of the whole earth, inspire every thought, hallow every emotion, and be the guide of every act. And by what he termed the true religion Mr. Harrison did not mean merely some vague deism or some shadowy belief in a vaguer power that made for righteousness, but a very definite personal relationship to a personal God, who was not only to be looked up to and reverenced, but who was to be loved. Quote, The paramount importance to man of religion, at once dominant over brain and heart, a living reality and working power. The necessity for this has not only never left me at any time, but year by year has grown deeper as a conviction, and more familiar as a rule of life. But as the indispensable need of true religion grew stronger in my mind, I more and more came to feel that religion would end in vague sentimentality unless it has an object of devotion distinctly grasped by the intellect and able to kindle ardent emotions the nature if not the name of the supreme being is in truth decisive unless the supreme power be felt to be in sympathy with the believer be akin to the believer be in active touch with his life and heart such a religion is merely a dogma it cannot be a guide of life in the spring of action, the object of love. End quote. Agnosticism, so fashionable in educational circles at the end of the nineteenth century, has practically disappeared, or at least has suffered such an eclipse that its adherents are comparatively few. There was a time in the generation that is still alive when a great many educators, who felt that they were the leaders of thought in our time were quite sure that agnosticism would be the only mode of intellectual reaction which the educated man could possibly think of allowing to take place in him by the time the year of grace nineteen twenty had come instead agnosticism like so many other movements of similar kind founded on human thinking in accord with the fashion of the moment has dwindled into insignificance. Fortunately, there were some educators who even 25 years ago recognised the real portent of it and stated their opinions so emphatically as to keep the educational world of their time from being entirely run away with. President Sherman of Cornell said, Agnosticism is the apotheosis of scepticism. It is scepticism as a creed, as a system, as an ultimate resting place. Those who proclaim it strangely misread the processes and the conditions of our spiritual life. They make the aimless gropings of the youthful intellect an ideal for the thinking of mature men. Only instead of the awful earnestness of the inquiring youth, they often affect an indifference to the great problems which oppress him as though we could be indifferent to the highest interests of the human spirit. So long as life lasts, so long must we strive to grasp the ultimate truth of things. To shut our eyes to problems is an ostrich policy. Man is called by an inner voice to strive and strive and strive and not to yield. Agnosticism would eradicate this noble endeavour. Its only justification, so far as I can see, is that men never attain the absolute truth, but only make successive approximations to it. End quote. Such men seem to forget the great lesson that the differential calculus has taught us. It represents one of the greatest developments of modern mathematics. It does not solve problems by absolute solutions, but by such approximations as make the answer which cannot be reached very clear. It has been of immense value in adding to the knowledge of mankind, and in giving science particularly a command over principles that would otherwise seem impossible. Religion requires faith to complete it. Knowledge can never more than approximate conclusions with regard to many religious questions. Such approximations, however like the answers in differential calculus, represent real advances on the road to knowledge that are of great value in directing men toward what is best in life. Mr. Frederick Harrison has answered the question, can we still believe, by insisting that belief in the hereafter is the most precious heritage that man has, to be fostered above all else. He said, the great truth of a life beyond the grave is indeed one of the best possessions of man the fondest of all noble living and working doctrines on earth when paul first preached it in that sublime song of triumph over death which has so often thrilled us to the marrow as we stood round the coffined dead he gave the human race a new and imperishable hope to last while the planet endures. Let us cherish and hold fast this glad tiding of good things. Anyone who faces the question of religion seriously realises that not only it is not a thing of the past, but that the rationalistic tendencies of the later 19th century have had their usual inevitable reaction emphasized by the great war, so that men are readier to be swayed by religious influences than ever before. The more one studies the problems of health of mind and of body connected with religion, and the strong factor that it is for the making of character, the shaping of destiny, and the cultivation of happiness, the more one realizes the truth of Napoleon's expression that if religion were to disappear we should have to reinvent it because of the immense benefit that it represents for mankind End of chapter one part two